0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
1: I assume you've been following some of the news today and you heard what happened this morning and what has led to discussion all afternoon today. And that is, you know, the background that Doug Ford, Premier Doug Ford wants to slash Toronto City Council by not quite half, but but significantly cut down the number of seats, align the seats with the ridings in the city. Uh, In his words, make it more cost-effective, make decisions easier because there's fewer people to get muddled up in the decisions. Well, that's the background. And so they had passed legislation that said that this was going to be done. Well, it went to court, and today a judge decided that this was not going to be allowed, that it was overturned, that it was blocked. The court blocked the Ontario government's move to do this. And so in response to this, the premier announced today that they would be using the notwithstanding clause to push this through. Now, that is a phrase that many people have heard before. I would guess usually in relation to Quebec or federal Quebec politics, occasionally Saskatchewan, but mostly in Quebec or the federal government. And yet, Many people, despite the fact that the name is familiar, really didn't know all that much about it, don't know all that much about it. So we are going to try to be educational as well as informative today. So by the end of this, you will be able to know what the heck is going on and what the notwithstanding clause is and what is happening here. Asher Honickman is a lawyer. He's a partner at Matthew's Abogado Law Firm in Toronto. As part of his practice, he has handled constitutional litigation. He's spoken on this before as well. He joins us now. Asher, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, As I say, when I talked to people today and asked around about it to try and get a sense of this, I saw a lot of glassy eyes. Maybe some recognition of this phrase. I think most people have heard it before. But why don't you take, if you can, a minute or two here, and in your best professorial uh, work, try and explain the concept of the Notwithstanding Clause and how it applies here.
2: Okay, Scott, I'd be happy to. So, I mean, the Notwithstanding Clause basically says that the provinces or parliament, when they're passing a law, can put in the law that the law will operate notwithstanding Sections 2, and 7 to 15 of the Charter. In other words, that even if those laws infringe the Charter, or if a court determines those laws infringe the Charter, the laws will still be valid operating laws. And the Notwithstanding Clause was really part of the grand bargain that allowed the Charter to even happen in 1982. There were a lot of provinces, uh, Quebec among them, but not only Quebec, certainly, that were very... Uh, hesitant about signing on to, um, uh, you know, what amounted to a bill of rights giving the courts more power. And the notwithstanding clause was the carrot that brought a lot of provinces to the table because it basically said, "Look, uh, we're going to have this bill of rights uh, that's going to look kind of American, but don't worry, we're not going to totally lose our our British uh, parliamentary supremacy heritage. So you provinces, especially, can still pass laws uh, that you want to pass, and if." uh... if a a judge says that the law is unconstitutional you can invoke this notwithstanding clause uh... now since then it's essentially become known as the nuclear option it's been invoked very very rarely and uh, so, and it's never been invoked in Ontario. So this is actually a very historic moment for Ontario to even use the clause, and some some would say politically bold and even dangerous uh, to go down this road just because we've never done it before.
1: Well, let's go there for a second because we know there have been many, many times in uh, over the last I don't know since the since the Charter was since the Constitution of the Charter rights was signed, so it was 1982. There's lots of times when courts, judges, Supreme Court of Canada have overturned something or blocked something that a government. Provincial or federal wants to put in, and nobody, uh, or very rarely, have anybody has any government actually tried to use this. If it's there for that purpose, why have they not used it?
2: Well, it comes with a lot of baggage, I think. Um, I, I mean, I'm not an expert historian, but my sense of this is that in the early days it probably could have been used and and if that's sort of the way that our constitutional culture had gone i think it could have gone that way but for whatever reason it wasn't used that much in you know let's say in the first ten or fifteen years and a sort of custom developed against using it, where to use it was essentially to say, I don't really respect the courts. Like, that's the message that it, it, it sort of sends. When really you're not sending that message, the purpose of the notwithstanding clause is not to say, we don't care about courts, we don't care about the charter. The purpose is really to say, we interpret the Constitution also. You courts... Don't have a monopoly on constitutional interpretation, and we interpret it differently than you interpret it. Not that we don't care about freedom of expression, or life, liberty, and security of the person. We just disagree with you. Um, Now, another reason it hasn't been invoked that often is because typically, if you get a a decision you disagree with, you can appeal it, right? And and uh, the government of Ontario is going to appeal this decision too. But because of the unique circumstances where this election is, is uh, approaching us pretty quickly, the only way to have this coming election be uh, an election with the 25 councillors instead of the 47 is to invoke the Notwithstanding Clause. Um, the only other alternative that I could think of that the government could have done would have been to um, appeal the decision bring a motion for a stay of the judgment, and then, and then pass a law that made the uh, municipal election uh, you know, take place a little bit further down the road. But that's problematic, too. You know? I mean, the government would then be changing an election date, uh, and who knows if that would have been challenged. So probably I'm not in the government, I'm not in touch with people in the government, but I'm guessing what they said is this is the sort of easiest, cleanest way for us to do this, um, they, there's probably people in Ford's government who think, you know, staffers who think this goes perfectly with his brand as someone who likes to shake things up. This hasn't been done. You can be the first to do it. Uh, so that was probably animating some discussions. And uh, but but it's certainly it's a very historic moment for this country from a constitutional
0: perspective, and for this province especially, I would say. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML
1: talking about the move today by the Ford government to announce that it will be invoking the notwithstanding clause to get the cut of Toronto's city council put into place after a court ruled that it couldn't do that today. Chatting with Asher Honickman, who is a lawyer who has a background in constitutional litigation has spoken on this and fought these in court and Asher, here's the, here's where I think people now start to wonder. So the, uh, The government decides they're going to try and get the Ontario or the uh, Toronto Council whittled down. They put that in place. Someone sues and the court jumps into play and says, no, you can't do this. So now the government comes back and puts a hand on top of their hand and says, well, we're going to do the notwithstanding clause. Is there another hand that a court, a Supreme Court or someone could do to stop this? Is, Is there anything that can be done or is this the thing that pushes it through for sure?
2: Well, I, you know, the silver lining for people who are, you know, right, very rightfully concerned about protecting our rights and freedoms is that any invocation of the notwithstanding clause. Uh, has an expiration date of five years it has a shelf life of five years after five years, the government would have to reenact the notwithstanding clause again, and that puts a lot of political pressure on a government i mean it, we can imagine this happening it doesn 't happen now because it doesn 't get invoked very often, but we could imagine that even being an election issue you know uh so let 's say ford uh in, invokes this clause and and if he didn 't appeal it, um, you know that issue would then have to come up in five years again, and and we could see the next election potentially even being fought partially over that. You know, was it right to invoke it? You know, elect a, a liberal government. We'll we won't invoke it when the uh, deadline comes up again. We'll agree with the court's decision. So that's sort of the check that gets placed on uh, the notwithstanding clause. Uh in this case, my understanding is the government is also appealing the decision. And uh so if the Court of Appeal agrees with the government, then the use of the notwithstanding clause becomes moot at that point because the court has now sided with the government. Um, It's a good idea to appeal when you invoke the notwithstanding clause because the message you're sending, again, is not uh, we don't care about the Constitution, we don't care about rights. You're sending the message we have a different take on this. We have a different take on whether this does infringe freedom of expression in this case.
1: All right, let me play politics for just a minute. I I am now a politician of whatever political stripe, and I get voted into office, and I have a very clear super strong belief that the platform that I want to bring into power is going to work. It's going to improve the economy. It's going to improve everyone's life for the better. Why would I not just that impose all the things that I want to impose and with each one say, and this is with the notwithstanding clause and then nobody can stop anything. And for the time of your term, you could, if you really believe in what you're doing, you could prove to the people that this is all going to work.
2: Well, first of all, Again, the notwithstanding clause does not apply to the entire constitution. It only applies to sections two, which contains, you know, freedom of religion, uh, expression, association, assembly. It applies to sections seven to fifteen, which contains all of all of the legal rights and equality rights. It doesn't apply, for example, to voting rights. It doesn't apply to provinces acting outside their jurisdiction. Let's say, you know, if a province enacted criminal law, the notwithstanding clause can't apply to that. Um, you know, we heard we heard uh, there was almost a scandal about this, where Caroline Mulroney answered a question from a reporter, where they asked, "Are you going to invoke the notwithstanding clause over the federal carbon tax?" You know, and and that's not something you can apply the notwithstanding clause to. So that's the first thing that you don't you can't use it for everything. You can only use it for a few things. But the second thing is that I you know, as I said, there's a political cost to using it. Even if you have a majority government, um, you know, I I think if if you're a government that is just using it, you know, without any care, just sort of saying, we want to do what we're going to do, you'll very quickly develop uh, a reputation for being sort of authoritarian. Because if you disagree very thoughtfully with one or two court decisions, that's one thing. But if you're passing it uh, if you're including the notwithstanding clause in every bill you're passing, you really are sending the message, we don't care about the Constitution, we don't care about courts, we don't care about rights. And I, I think that would taint whatever party would do that. I think it would certainly taint whatever Premier or Prime Minister would, would spearhead that.
1: That said, and, and I agree with you, I mean, I was, I was obviously throwing out an extreme situation, but, uh, you know, it, here's the thing, though, we have heard a lot of people Talking in recent years about their distaste for activist judges, that they believe that politicians were elected to make the rules, not judges, that politicians were elected to decide the people have chosen the politicians, the people haven't chosen the judges. Will there be some people who are applauding this then saying, thank goodness somebody has now taken the power out of the unelected people's hands and at least made the people who are going to have to answer to the electorate, the ones making the call?
2: Well, certainly. I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of people who like this decision just because it, you know, takes power away from courts, gives it to elected representatives, etc. I, I would just say we have to be cautious about that. Um, it's there's nothing wrong with taking an individual decision, saying I don't like this decision, I think it was poorly reasoned. The the government's right to appeal it, and their right to invoke the notwithstanding clause in this case. But if we get away from a mentality of of understanding the importance of the charter of the entire constitution and of court and of the role of courts in enforcing those things, then we can really lose something because today it can be a policy that you really like and you 're saying, "Oh thank God, the government is you know passing this stuff that I really like, but tomorrow it could be a government you hate and and you would love to have a court in there to say this is unconstitutional you know it, it Depends what your issue is. It depends what uh, you know. What stripes the government has. So I think we got to be very careful. And the way we deal, with, the way we should deal with activist judges is not to say let's get rid of you know judges deciding things. It it should be to focus on individual judgments and say, this needs to be better. You judge have to decide, um, you know, more in, 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 uh, in keeping with the text and then keeping with the purpose behind it, not in keeping with the result you want. Uh, You know, this is, uh, I I, uh, co-founded a group called Advocates for the Rule of Law. This is our entire mission. You know, we're not anti-charter certainly, but we have criticized a lot of decisions on the basis that judges went beyond what the text called for, that they invented rights. So that's what you do when judges, do that you don't throw the whole thing out and say well let's just not have courts anymore
1: Ash, you know what Asher, your point we got to go your point is bang on though it's something that you can love it when it's someone that you agree with but heaven forbid when it's someone you disagree with and then all of a sudden they start doing this uh, you're gonna blanch a little bit that goes on both sides and I, it's, a, it's a great point Asher Honickman for Matthews Abogado, really appreciate the time today thanks for doing this
0: thank you Scott you're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML
1: Everybody's favorite three letters around here, LRT. Time to talk about them for a couple reasons. One is because we have a municipal election coming up in just a month and a bit. And this is going to be one of the decisive issues. This is, as we get into this, this is going to be one of the things guaranteed that is going to drive people to vote one way or another. We know this. It's been an ongoing thing. It's m- clear as mud right now about whether or not the billion dollars from the Ford government is there or is isn't there. What can we do with it? Is it whatever? You know all the background of this, right? Well, the reason I bring it up today is because we're not the only city that has talk or building or construction or contemplating or somewhere along the way an LRT. Ottawa is also in the late stages of putting together an LRT line. Uh, theirs is a little bigger than ours. Theirs, I think, is $2.1 billion. Ours is supposed to be $1 billion. But today, news comes out that for the, I don't, we'll have to ask in just a moment here, but for the numerous-ish time, a delay. What does this mean? John Willing is Ottawa Citizen City Hall reporter. Uh, he joins us now. John, thanks for doing this today.
3: Hey, Scott, thanks for having me.
1: So am I correct? Uh, correct me anywhere I'm wrong along this way, because I've got LRT overload here from all these different places. This In Ottawa, this LRT was supposed to be ready in 2017, around the time of the Canada 150, right? No, actually,
3: it was supposed to be ready earlier this year, Scott, around May. Was okay. A big handover date we were expecting, May 24th. The city was going to take possession of the LRT line here in Ottawa. They were going to do some weeks of testing. And they're hoping to have, have it open by Canada Day this year, um, but they found out early in 2018 that May handover date wasn't going to happen. It was pushed off. We were expecting to receive it this coming November 2nd, but we just learned today there's going to be a second delay. It's going it to uh, push off the handover into early 2019.
1: And do we know why? Is this something that was anticipated or was this a complete shock today?
3: Well, it was a bit of a shock today, only because we've had one delay already, Scott. Um, everyone, was, everyone was pretty excited about this LRT system in Ottawa. As you said in your intro, $2.1 billion. We're actually building a two-kilometer tunnel under the downtown core. Uh, it's, it's a huge project. It's the big, biggest project in, in the city's history in Ottawa. Um, two years ago, we had a huge sinkhole on Rideau Street mm-hmm. downtown Ottawa. I remember that. News. That's right. It was massive. And it was actually, it happened, Scott, right above where the tunnel is being built downtown. And up until, you know, earlier this year, that was the reason for the first delay. We had this huge sinkhole. They had to remediate that, had to do some fixes. And so we, we had this delay to November. Now, it just seems that that time has been lost so much that there needs to be a second delay into 2019.
1: I want to get back into this and some of the concerns or whatever else. But you mentioned right there that people are really excited about this. Is this a project that in Ottawa has generally pretty widespread support, both from politicians and from the public?
3: It, I saw, you know, Scott. I see it split. Ottawa geographically is a massive city. It's huge. There is a huge rural component. Uh, there's a huge suburban component, and of course, there's an urban component. The LRT system that's being built in Ottawa right now, it's phase one of what will be a multi-phase transit system. So we're building the backbone of the LRT system right now, and that's going to go through the downtown. It's 12 and a half kilometers long. There's 13 stations. It's going to traverse the core area of the city, and eventually we're going to start building out towards the suburbs. And, you know, a lot of people look at this core LRT line that's being built and say, you know, it doesn't come to me. It doesn't come to us way out here in the suburbs. We're spending... $2 $2 billion for what right now? But, I mean, the city keeps trying to remind people this is the first phase of many and many more phases to come. In fact, once this first phase opens, we hope, <laughs> in early 2019, the city plans to break down on what they call stage two. And that's going to extend the LRT line out to the the suburbs in, in um, Uh, Orleans, which is in the east end of the city, down to the south end of the city. We're going to get a a rail connection to our international airport here in Ottawa and uh, take us out to one of uh, of the colleges in the city, too. So really, this is just the first step of what the city has as as a major transit plan.
1: Sorry, I was stifling my laughter as you were talking, not because what you were saying was funny, just because what you were saying was so similar to what we're going through right here with the downtown and with the why is it concerning me because I live in the suburbs. This is exactly the debate. And so when that was happening, did this pass? Because a lot of people won't even be familiar with Ottawa and their LRT. Did this pass very quickly and did construction get going right away or was there a chance that this thing was ever going to get kiboshed?
3: Uh, you know what, Scott? At the beginning of this whole discussion in Ottawa of an LRT system, the city had an original plan to go north south through the city rather than what we're doing right now, east west. There was a municipal election in 2006. After that election, the city changed the route to go east west. And actually, a lot of people who live in the south end of Ottawa now rue of the day <laughs> they hate they hate what happened because they would have had an uh, a, a rail system essentially down to the south southern suburbs but you know elections can change a lot of things it sounds like that might uh happen in, in hamilton too and you know we're 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 talking about stage two and and ottawa it could be an election issue ahead of the october 22nd vote the incumbent mayor is 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 set on on the city's existing plan we have a challenger who's who's trying to pitch a commuter rail service for uh, communities outside of Ottawa, too. So anything can change when there's a new city council that comes into office.
1: And we got to go to a break in just a second here. When did the construction start on this? How long has it been underway?
3: Oh, uh, it's been going on, Scott, now for about uh, four years, I believe, three to four years. You're listening to the Scott Radley
0: Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Chatting LRT, and why are we doing this to ourselves again? Well, not just to torture ourselves, because Ottawa is in the middle of construction. Well, not middle. is at the end stages of construction of an LRT. They had an announcement today of another delay. But what does this mean? Because their LRT, if you were just listening, their LRT is the plan, what they're doing, very similar, very similar to what our our, our LRT plan is. Almost the same length, almost the same number of stations, through the downtown, east to west. There are so many things that sound similar. It's as if the same person almost designed the two of them and put them in the two different cities. John Willing is the City Hall reporter for the Ottawa Citizen. Uh, John, just before the break, I was saying this has been going on for four, four, whatever, four and a half years, the construction there in Ottawa. How? What has been the impact on the businesses and on the corridor along where this construction was going on, has it been detrimental to those businesses well there's a, there's a few parts to that scott first of all what's happening
3: in ottawa with the lrt they're actually con- converting a bus only road to the lrt line mm. so the advantage there is they just have to slap tracks on a lot of the road that's only being used for buses and ch- change that to lrt now once you get downtown they're building a tunnel underneath the downtown, just a couple blocks blocks away from Parliament Hill. And then it's going to spit out the other side of downtown and keep going on what is or what was a bus only only road. So that's where the advantage is for Ottawa. Now, downtown, they've had to build surface stations, though, that go into the tunnel. So we've seen closures of a main road, Queen Street. If anyone knows Ottawa, Queen Street is just two blocks away from Parliament Hill. We've seen a closure of Rideau Street. Rideau Street is a major, major road where the a major mall is, the Rideau Centre. It connects with Sussex. Um, we've seen restricted uh, auto access on both those roads. And we've heard from businesses who are very upset. You know, once you take away car traffic, a lot of people, uh, a lot of businesses get really concerned. And when you start taking away on-street parking spots, as we've seen on both Queen Street here and Rideau, uh, a lot of businesses are wondering where people can park. A lot of people don't you know, want to park right in front of where they're going to shop or get their hair cut or pick up their groceries. Uh, so we have had uh, uh, some concern from the business community, community, but like I said, we're we have a huge advantage, and we're just converting a bus road to rail right now.
1: Yeah, it sounds like there's vastly, well, I mean, very little distraction. All things considering what it could have been, considering what it could have been, it sounds like there's not a lot of distraction to everyday life.
3: That you know, there here's the distraction for the average Ottawa resident. You know, a lot of the buses, because, because we have the advantage of what's called the transit way in the city where it's just a bus-only road, a lot of those buses have to go somewhere if we're converting that road to rail. So those buses have had to go onto regular streets and have been clogging up some of the streets. They've had to create bus-only lanes on some of the streets. They've had to run buses on the Queensway, which is the major provincial highway that goes through the city. We've had to put the buses somewhere. And so people have been detoured around the city to get where they have to go. So a lot of the frustration has come from the people who are regular transit riders who have to be on a bus a little bit longer. And then from regular motorists who have to, you know, deal with having more bus congestion on their roads too. So it's really impacted a lot of people, but I think that the people who have been impacted the most has been everyday uh, bus users.
1: It does strike me today. And there's, there's things you're saying that are, really reassuring quite honestly for people in Hamilton I think who would be wondering about the LRT. There are other things that may be less so. The one that stands out to me as one of the less so is when I hear that Ottawa has a second significant and I think half a year roughly is a significant number, a significant delay, Waterloo, which has an LRT now that's built, but they can't get their trains. It's in a third or fourth delay. Mm -hmm. Edmonton had huge problems with their LRT when it was getting started. They had all kinds of delays. Toronto is having delays. It seems like you can't build an LRT system without planning for, you know, the Olympics, whatever budget you have, double it. With an LRT, whatever time frame you have, add a year or two to it.
3: Yeah, you know, our, our mayor here early in the project was using the line, you know, LRT is on time and on budget. And he would pump <laughs> this line all the time. And and eventually what would happen is we'd find out that there would be extra costs that aren't a part of the LRT contract, and which add to the total price tag. And so all of a sudden it's not really on budget. And then we learn of delays earlier this year. Well, all of a sudden it's not on time. So you know what, if you're, if you're City Hall, if you're Ottawa City Hall, if you're you know, Waterloo Region uh, Hall, if you're Hamilton City Hall, you really have to manage those expectations because it is a massive undertaking. You're talking about a billion-dollar project in Hamilton. That's massive. $2 billion here in Ottawa with a tunnel that's going under the downtown. I mean, the challenge for city politicians, city bureaucrats, and, and the builder, too, is to try to explain to the public how big of a project is how big of a project this is, and how sometimes one thing, like in Ottawa, a huge sinkhole, could set everything off track.
1: John, you keep making me laugh only because you're telling the story of Hamilton. That phrase, that exact phrase, on time and on budget, was used over and over and over building Tim Hortons Field the new stadium here, and of course it came in maybe on budget, but nowhere close to on time. I still don't think it's even finished yet, officially. Um, you might, if you if you're the mayor, if you're a mayoral candidate here in Hamilton, probably the on time and on budget, if you're going to do the LRT thing, probably based on your example, not a good thing to go with. Don't put that on your signs.
3: No, I don't know. <laughs> with, with a huge project like that, you don't know what's going to happen. We live in, in Ontario, the weather could be terrible. You could have some yeah. terrible winters and construction seasons could be shortened. So, you know, when you put a date, it's, when you put a date out there for a timeline, I wouldn't put it in, put it in stone, that's for sure.
1: John Willing of the Ottawa Citizen, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this.
0: Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty. I want to get to a bunch of things from the world of sports, and they are all things that I think have been just dis- big discussion points over the last few days. and Obviously, let's start with the big one from the weekend. I- Did you see the Serena Williams thing? I haven't. Okay. I've so, heard
4: all kinds about it. I guess
1: she flipped that day. Eh? So what happened was that uh, tennis has a rule, an archaic rule, I grant you. It's a stupid rule. I don't really understand why it exists, but it does, yep. which is that during your game, you cannot get coaching from your coach. They can be sitting in the stands, they can be wherever, but you can't be coached by them. Again, I don't really know why the rule exists, but it's on the books. And so it's a rule and the umpire. So after Serena Williams blew a point, it's the finals of the U S open, a big event, huge event, one of the four majors after she blew a point, she's getting hammered right now by her opponent. She's losing badly. She looks up to the audience and her coach gives her some rather, apparently some rather obvious hand signs of some kind. And because of the situation, she'd stopped for a moment, the end of the point, she looks up in the audience, the umpire, the chair umpire sees this, it's blatantly obvious, and he gives her a warning for receiving coaching, at which point she loses it and says, you're accusing me of cheating. You owe me an apology because I'd rather lose than cheat. I don't cheat. I have a daughter. I don't cheat, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Anyway, shortly after she smashes her racket and gets a... Another violation, which is after the first one, which is a warning, the second one, she loses a point. And then a few moments later, she accuses the chair umpire of being a thief because he stole a point from her and continuing on and he deducts a game from her. Anyway, this whole thing led to a huge discussion about whether or not this was sexist because men get away with way more on the tennis court and this should never have happened. And now the judge is the bad guy, and Serena Williams has somehow positioned herself as a modern-day Lady Godiva or something. I'm not really sure. Victim for sure. Well, victim for sure. That she is fighting for women's rights and blah blah. I don't. I don't. I don't get it at all. I don't get it at all. And I don't. I don't get the people who are jumping on board the. I mean, Serena Williams. Fantastic athlete, maybe the greatest women's athlete of all time, greatest female athlete of all time, certainly in the discussion. But I don't get this one at all.
4: Well, I'm not going to say anything bad about Serena Williams because anybody that can take one of those tennis rackets and smash it with their bare hands is
1: obviously far stronger than I am. No, I bet you could do it. They're not that strong. But, it's. I mean, she is passionate. She is a strong, athletic, gifted woman. Like, There's nothing, as far as her performance, nothing you can take away from Serena Williams. She's the best female tennis player ever, unquestionably, and she's probably in the top three or five greatest female athletes of all time of anything.
4: So she's a premier athlete. She's been on top of the tennis world for years. Yes. Uh, Decades. Dominant. And probably longer than any other woman in the modern area, area era has she dominated like this. Yes. And when you're getting your butt kicked and you're starting to see the downside of your career because they can't all stay up at that level forever, the frustration comes in. And I assuredly, the frustration was as much about her getting hammered, as you said, she was far behind, and that frustration coming through, that you can't just turn it on and off anymore because your competition is that much better, then I think you start blowing a gasket, or my back hurts, or... You know what I mean? Uh, Tiger Woods had to go through it. I mean, he's, he is seemingly back, but those elite athletes, when things don't go their way and they can't pull a rabbit out of the hat like they've always been able to,
1: puts them in a different mindset, I'm sure. I, I agree with you. And I think that this has, I, I think absolutely if she had been winning this match, in all likelihood, none of this happens. None of this happens if she's winning this match. I I, I agree with you on that one. But here's the other thing. She accused the chair judge, the chair umpire, of accusing her of cheating. She said to him that he owed her an apology because he accused her of cheating. Best offense is good defense. Her coach after the match says, "Yeah, I was doing that. I was coaching her." <laughs> so there's not a question that the umpire was wrong. Was wrong. He was right. Now, we can have a dis- disagreement about where he may or may not have gone right or wrong but as far as making the warning and again it was a warning first about coaching it's in the rules you can dislike the rule and I do I think it's a stupid rule but it's a rule and he saw her receiving coaching her judge her her coach says I was coaching her he gave her a warning somehow this makes him a sexist pig who is cracking down on her and calling her a cheater which I I just like Billie Jean King is out there tweeting about this, saying how this is fighting for women's rights and to get rid of sexism and all this stuff. And it's like, no, she did break the rules. At least her coach did. And her coach is an extension of her. She broke the rules by that definition. She was called on it. She further broke the rules or at least after she'd received a warning, she took it to the next step. And then she continued. Here's the thing. I looked this up. Actually, I didn't look it up. I I should clarify this. I found this on Twitter. A New York Times sports columnist tweeted this out very recently. Just actually during the show. This came up during a break in the show. Because the, the point was made that, well, this doesn't happen to the men. This is what she was arguing. Men get away with everything. Men can do anything on the tennis court and nobody says anything to them. Guess how many code violations there were in the U.S. Open by men and by women this year, I'll give you the number for women and then you can tell me what number would you think it would be for men. This year in the U.S. Open tennis tournament, same number of players, by the way, men and women, same number of matches, men and women, 22 women, 22 violations were given against women in this tournament. How many do you think there were against men? 47. 86. Hmm. Basically almost to the number four times as many. So you cannot make the argument that men are getting away with everything on the court and women are being held to a different standard that way. That's the first thing. But the second part, and there were so many things about this that drove me nuts. The second part is most of the men don't lose points and games because after they've received a violation, they stop it. They go, "Oh, got to got to rein it in. I can't keep doing this. I can't p- keep getting in the umpire's face and Calling him a cheater and calling him a thief and doing all this kind of stuff. But then when you do that, somehow it's sexist that he does what he does. I just, I, I'm. You're not buying what she I'm not buying it at all. And yeah. I can't believe how many people, though, Dawn, are buying it, which again takes nothing away from Serena Williams as a tennis player. To me, it, this diminishes her as a sportswoman, as a sports person especially when now the poor girl who, poor woman who won, who wins her first Grand Slam ever. Nobody knows who it is. Is completely overshadowed, is complete. The story is not about her. She doesn't get to enjoy this moment. And even though Serena Williams afterwards, when everybody was booing, she goes, cut it out. She caused it. Yeah. And for her, and sorry, I'm on a rant here, but. When she was talking to the umpire, and you can watch the whole thing, it's online. When she's taking issue with the umpire, saying, You owe me an apology for calling me a cheater, and she starts talking about how I'm a mother and I have a daughter. That, to me, that was the most blatant, naked attempt at that moment to try and v- make herself the victim in front of the whole audience. So they would go, Oh, what a hero that she's the woman fighting for. That was a crock of absolute crap. Serena Williams was arguing and melting down because she was losing and she doesn't usually lose and she got called on her behavior, which 84 times as many men during that tournament got called on than women. She couldn't rein herself in like almost all the men did. It was her own fault. And now the umpire, what happens to this umpire? Who was, by the way, one of the I think twenty highest ranked, highest rated umpires in the world? What happens to him now? Well,
4: if the umpire association have any integrity, they put him out there for the next final. What do you think the chances that? Well, even if they do, though, you can put what I know about referee in tennis in a thimble or. But for any official, a cap, any you, official, but they should back the guy. It, well, if Especially it was? Especially when her coach has said. Um, yeah, I was doing that. So anyway, after you ran, I just go back to, go back to what I said to start with. I think that's what, in essence, called what happened. That's why she was calling everybody out is because she's diminishing. She wasn't uh, on top of her game because she thinks she should win every time. And when you've won as many times as her, I know exactly how you think that way. But I don't know. I mean, I didn't, uh, I didn't see it, but I can see the frustration when you're, when you're the world's absolute best at what you do for as long as she has been, then she has her own expectations.
1: I understand that. And I grant you that and I applaud the passion. I applaud the fact so that why. She, that's why she's so great. I applaud the fact that she wants to win and expects to win every time she steps on the court. That I have no issue with at all. But to go all scorched earth and make sure that if you're going to lose, you're going to make sure everybody around you is going down in a ball of flames, that your opponent is going to lose the opportunity for that moment for herself and this umpire now, every time he sets foot into a chair, he is going to be scrutinized extra hard. There's going to be people questioning that he's sexist, that he hates Serena Williams, that he hates women, all this kind of stuff. It's all a crock of crap and it's all because she decided that she was not going to lose gracefully or graciously.
4: I'll tell you the absurd part about the entire story that I did not know. Is that during the game you can't be coached? Yeah, it's the only sport I've ever heard of that you can't be coached during the game. Like it's not football, it's not basketball, it's not any of the team sports we're familiar with. Golf, I don't uh, see coaches wandering around out there with their.
1: No, but you could. But you could pupils. have your caddy as your coach if you really wanted to.
4: Well, I'm sure the caddies help and the caddies the are thing. helping. Yeah. You tell them the yardages, and sure. you know what the way you're hitting this. I mean, they're they're built-in coaches. Yep. Most mostly cheerleaders, and, and giving a guy confidence. And I'm sure when they walk from one hole to another, and Sean Foley, a swing coach, is there, and somebody looks at him and says, "What's up?" And he gives them something. You know, it just well.
1: He could walk alongside, outside the rope with yeah. his player I mean, and talk.
4: It just seems bizarre that you cannot be coached during a game. Who cares?
1: I don't understand the rule. Someone today, I heard someone throw out a possible explanation. I don't know if this is it or not, and that is because it's an individual sport, it would be unfair that the top people at the top of the game who have millions and millions of dollars and all the sponsorships and everything else could afford to fly their coach to everywhere and someone who's ranked number 190th might not. So you have this advantage to the people who have all the money. i I don't know if that's the explanation. Doesn't seem to doesn't seem I, to fit because I'm sure it's a pretty old rule. I was gonna say it seems like it would predate that kind of thing. They didn't just bring it in when the prize menu went to money went to no. a million bucks. No. And so that's why I don't think that's it, but I can't think of a better but, explanation. When you're toward. searching for explanations, you gotta dig deep, right? And I and I can't I can't find out I couldn't find out. I looked today to see if I could find out what the root of that was. I can't find where that comes from. The Jazz Siri? I didn't actually ask Siri. We, we'll do that during the commercial break. She probably knows. Um, but anyway, I know I, I I was I was disappointed, and I don't know if saddened is the right word. I mean, I'm I'm not lying in bed weeping about Serena Williams, but um, but I was disappointed that someone who has p- positioned herself and in many ways rightly so as one of the great women's champions, again, not just on the court but off the court, one of the spokeswomen for young girls and for women, one of the people who has the most heft behind her words that she, when she speaks, people listen, that she took this opportunity to go down, taking everybody with her and that at the end, she wouldn't come out in the press conference after and say, you know what, it was passionate. I was upset, but I was wrong and I apologize to so-and-to-the-player, and I apologize to the umpire who I disagree with, but I handled this poorly. That, that to me, would be a champion. It would. That would be a champion to me. Phil Mickelson earlier in the
4: year got a penalty for stopping a ball that was rolling off the green.
1: Yeah, for hitting it while it was still moving.
4: He's going, I don't care what the penalty is. I'm sick and tired of this because I'm a better golfer than that. There might be a par- parallel there because he's been a premier athlete. He's won major championships. He's an iconic golf figure in the United States and around the world
1: and knew the consequences, didn't care. And what would have happened if Phil Mickelson – well, let me back up for a second because Phil Mickelson, it's a great example. It's a, it's a really good example. What would have happened if Phil Mickelson had gone up to the on-course official and got right in his face and just started reaming him. At that point, he would have looked like a moron. He would have. He would have looked like an unlikable, boorish moron. He
4: had to wear. He had to wear it enough anyway, and he was polite about it. Yep. Like he had to wear that. You know, people say, but it's the people that don't like him.
1: Right? But let Saying, me ask you uh, another question, Don. Do that. So, you know, we always hear that about you know in certain situations, and this is not a sexual harassment circumstance by any stretch, but we always hear that. It's the power position that gives the person. So Serena Williams is the most powerful woman. In tennis by far, and is probably in the top three powerful people in tennis. Roger Federer might be in that mix. She's up there in sports. Rafael Nadal might be in that mix, but she's, she is right there. She's in the Nike ad. Yeah, she is. And when, when Serena Williams talks people, she, she has a lot of power. So when she goes after this official, this, this guy who's the umpire, you can't argue somehow that someone wants to make that he is the man. So he is holding power over her. No one knows who he is. She's Serena Williams and she's in his face, giving it to him. She is the one who's flexing her muscles at that point and being intimidating. How would this have played if this was a male tennis player saying the exact same things to a female chair umpire that hmm. guy would have been destroyed in the press De- whether he was right or not if the exact same thing had happened if the circumstances were 100 percent the same if he they, would if have they been, were the
4: same he'd have been wrong too
1: he would have but he would have been destroyed and nobody would have said he was fighting for some rights of something and i'm pretty sure bringing up the fact that he was the father wouldn't have You think that would have helped? You think that would have made him more of a hero or more of a victim or more of a, what? No, it would have been a pathetic thing to do. Just like when she brings it up, this is, that has nothing to do with anything. She was losing. She got frustrated. She lost her mind. And I want to reiterate as we go to break, I want to reiterate because this somehow has gotten lost because nobody bothered to do the research before launching into their endless tweets and their endless commentary in the U S open As we talk about how the chair umpire was sexist because nobody calls code violations on men, only on Serena Williams and on women. And they're held to a higher standard, 22 violations against female players in this U S open 86 against men. The argument is completely fallacious and yet somehow it got all kinds of steam and Serena Williams is now being held up again as a Nike celebrity. Apparently, if you want to be a Nike celebrity in the Nike commercials, you've got to fly in the face of everything. Anyway, that's a rant for the day. I, I've, I've, I was so disgusted by it, by her behavior, because I hold her in very high regard as an athlete and as a champion. And I thought this was just pathetic. I don't think really you're over it. No, I'm not. Well, no, because this, because again, I'm looking at the woman who won and that moment should have been hers. And more even than that, I'm looking at that chair umpire whose career now is possibly permanently damaged by this. For what? For doing his job. I, I, I think
4: the, the official is going to be fine.
1: Maybe. Maybe. You know what? Was Carry Fraser 100% after he missed that call against Gretzky or did he carry around that missed call for the rest of his life? He's still carrying it around. All right. He still was able to do games, but that tainted him as yes. an official. That's what I'm talking about here. He, yeah, he'll still be able to work games. Yeah, but he is forever now the guy who cost Serena, you know, quote unquote, cost her. She was already she'd already lost that match for all intents and purposes. But he cost her the U.S. Open.
4: Well, he can probably write a book now.
1: Maybe, maybe. Although he doesn't say very much. He just takes the abuse.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: While we're on the topic of things that uh, bother us a bit and drive us a little bit nuts, have you seen the ads on one of Canada's national TV networks for the coverage that is going to be done of the Humboldt Broncos first game this year? No. Well,
4: I've been too busy selling real estate to watch well, that's good. a, a I'm, lot of
1: TV. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's going that well. So uh, one of the TV networks has decided they are going to cover the first game. And I would describe the ads leading up to this thing as maudlin almost exploitive, quite frankly. And that's that's what I think about this whole thing at this point. They had n- no, outside of Saskatchewan, there had never probably been a Humboldt-Broncos game shown on national TV. And to me, it just, it comes across, maybe, maybe you disagree and feel free, but to me it comes across as exploitive that we've now got a bunch of kids who, I don't think any of them were on the bus that had that accident last year. It's simply the... Jersey that's going to be the same, the sweater that's going to be the same in the arena and the town. I think some of them are back. I, I, I don't, don't know if any of them are. I'm not sure. Maybe there are one or two, but. There's not many. I just, yeah. And and because of tragic reasons, because of many, and we all understand the tragedy and this is not belittling the tragedy. This isn't making fun. This is the con, this is the opposite of that. I look at this and I think you are now taking advantage for ratings. To slurp on to what's left of this tragedy and try and drive ratings. As, and it that bugs me. It bugs me. If, if in fact that's the case, it's wrong. Well, what, what else would be the case? Why else would they show a Humboldt Broncos game coast to coast? They
4: will, and I don't know what network it is. I don't know if it's TSN or Sportsnet that are going to do it, but um, you're right. They're And it's an awful thing to say, a, a term to say, riding the coattails of it. But Um, you're right, there wouldn't normally be a whole lot more interest in a humble home opener than there would be the Burlington Cougars home opener traditionally. Other than it's a small town and it's a lot bigger deal than it likely is in Burlington, but you understand what I'm saying. And uh, you're right, and I don't know if keeping that fresh in the face, um, I don't know the value of it. I don't. I mean, it's nice to support Humble. They've had lots of support. <clears throat> Pardon me, you know, uh, uh, a great guy, Billy McDougall, that had played for me and played in mm-hmm. the American League, and you you had him on your show. Um, I know it was very touching for a lot of those players, but I get that. They lived sure. there. And they, at the time... They played on the
1: team. And at the time, covering the coverage and everything of the tragedy... By and large, I'm not going to take any issue with it. I, I think, think it, was, it was pretty well done. I think it was well done. I mean, you can say, you can argue, some will say it went on too long or say, no, I, I'm not going to go down there. I think you, the the people who covered it did the very best job they could to be respectful and to cover it. And if you think that it may have been this or that, that's that's fine. We all have... Tastes or, or feelings about how this, but I thought it was fine. I thought it was. I thought our country rea-
4: reacted in a very appropriate yes, manner. I yes. lowered
1: the flag in front of my house
4: to half mast. You put that's a hockey stick out. Me. Yes, See, I mean, yeah, and that, yes, I did. And that's all. And I'm smart enough to know that
1: nobody was coming to get it. No, but that's that's good. Like that it, that stuff is. It made all me good. feel good, and yeah. I thought it was the right thing to do. That stuff is all good, and no one is going to take issue with that one. And the coverage of the funeral was terrific, yeah. and of the memorial service, and all that's the. It, it this for some reason though is just in my craw. So you're but, thinking
4: it's it's now time to leave it, and maybe do maybe do a, a little revisit at Christmas time to see how things are going and how's the community reacting.
1: And uh, do you? Uh, here's the question. I, I will. I I may. I reserve the right to come back and tell myself, tell everybody, and say that I was completely wrong on this one. But it's my absolute expectation that this game is going to be played and broadcast with the intent of trying desperately to wring a few more tears out of people. I don't believe that this game, and I, look, I again, I will come back here and say if I was wrong afterwards, if it's just covered as a hockey game. But the I'm willing to bet money that this is going to be done in a way to try and be as emotional and as tear jerking and everything else as possible, which to me is what changes this and takes it from a hockey game that you can defend covering to something that we are going to jump on the tragedy and try and get a few more ratings points out of. That's, that's the disagreement I have with it. What network is it? It's the three letter one. Oh, okay. And, and again, they did a fantastic job on the funeral. This is not about them. They have all the rights for
4: uh, hockey canada but yeah,
1: they anyway, they so did a, th- th- what they did at the funeral was was terrific yeah. they did an amazing job there i
4: thought the memorial was great I, I i thought the fact that the prime minister was there and just sat out Amongst the people, yes. and, and Don Sherry was there and did the same thing. He and, and Ron
1: McLean just sitting in the audience yeah. with the people. I didn't and, know they were there to like and flash Justin on him when they were leaving. Justin Trudeau just sitting with people. I thought, you know, kudos to him yeah. for that one. I thought that was as as they honestly, all played it well. All every, it was everybody was as good a moment as yeah. he'd had. The minister got up. I, I found him fa- fabulous. Yes, everything about and and yeah. the way the network covered it, I thought they got full marks. This is yeah. not about the network. This is not about some bone to pick with them. I thought they did an amazing job yeah, with it good. and their coverage of the tragedy was very, very good. But there's a point at which you have to say, is this really what we want to do to try and continue this thing? Because we don't have the hockey rights. I, I don't know what they're thinking. I, I Again, maybe, I, maybe this is truly from the bottom of their heart as some homage to the team or something, but I just, I look at it and I go, no, it's, this is going to be sloppy. And I don't mean poorly produced. I mean, this is going to be an attempt to try and squeeze tears out of people. And that to me, we're past that. If you're going to cover a game, cover a game. And if if they cover the game and this game is covered as a hockey game, as it would be, if it was the Leafs or the Burlington Cougars or the Hamilton Bulldogs or whatever, if you're going to do that, then I will say I was wrong You did a great job and you brought this to the country and good job, but I have a feeling we're going to be seeing every attempt to interview every sad person, every person who's weeping about something and there's nothing wrong with weeping. It's just, it seems like it's taking advantage. Anyway, my thought, I'd love to hear from people. Radley at 900chml.com. What do you think? Was this something that you would think is is a good idea, is fair, is something that they should be jumping on? If they're, you know, if they're, if you're right. If they cover it as a game
4: like that and they they do it as a tribute to the hockey organization and the community for carrying on, then, I mean, there there wasn't much chance the hockey team was going to fold. They've never had so much money in the bank in their entire life, and it it's not all going to be used for hockey programs, but, I mean, the, the GoFundMe page was something we've never seen in Canada nope. before, which is, again, I think it was the right thing to do if it's Going to the families, and I and I think all the, the GoFundMe will me. take care of it.
1: Yeah, and, and I think all the GoFundMe is going to the families. But when you talk about like, there's probably more people in Canada that own Humboldt Broncos sweaters now yeah. or T-shirts or whatever, and that went to the team coffers, that's fine. That's fine. So you're right. The team. But I think
4: it, 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 if the approach is that, that these guys the, the the run the organization are carrying on under trying circumstances and trying to rebuild and keep the uh, keep what's really important to the the, the hockey fans, the Humboldt front and center, I think that would be a nice thing if they're doing that, if that's what they're
1: doing. And I'm, and again, just to clarify, I'm not saying that when you cover a story like this, that there will be no parts no, have that to, will No, they have be to acknowledge it, right? You can't let on like right? it didn't happen. I'm talking about, I'm going to wait and see if this thing is done with the express purpose of trying to and squeeze you'll know. that. And you'll, you'll, know right it, yeah. you'll know right away. You'll know right away. If this thing starts with a bunch of tinkling piano keys and soft frame, fr- fr- you know shots of this and, f- you know, if they cover it as a hockey game to honor the team, great, I guess, great. I, I again, I, uh, we'll see.
0: The Scott Radley Show weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.